high net worth individuals are beginning to leave London because it's just getting too expensive um, and the taxes are too high. And we really have to look at that. If we want to be internationally competitive, we have to look at how we're taxing our corporates. Welcome to the IEA podcast. My name is Matthew Ash. I'm the head of public policy here at the IEA. Each week, this podcast asks a tantalizing policy question to a top political and economic thinker. Today's question, will the Edinburgh reforms unleash British finance? The government has announced a package of reforms to the financial sector, which they've called the Edinburgh reforms. The over 30 reform proposals are designed to take advantage of Brexit freedoms and make the UK more innovative and competitive. Some say a big bang 2.0. But many critics are pointing out the government might be exaggerating the radicalism of the proposals or otherwise a concern that any loosening of financial regulations could result in calamity by weakening the rules. Um, to discuss these proposals, I'm very excited to be joined by Catherine McBride, who is an economist with decades of experience in financial services, fellow at the Centre for Brexit Policy, as well as a former economist here at the IEA, where she did write quite extensively about financial reform after Brexit. Um, so let's start, where, before the Edinburgh reforms, the government's already putting through Parliament uh, a financial services and markets bill that probably hasn't gotten as much attention as, as it might deserve. Um, what is the government's current uh, movement when it comes to this, this financial sector reforms? What have they already done, already, already about to pass through in legislation, Catherine? Um, that's, that's a really big question. They've, I would have hoped that they'd done a lot more. I think the key word in your question is movement. Because um, when you look at the things that are announced in the Edinburgh reforms, you sit there going, well, why isn't that in the financial services markets bill, which is going through the House of Lords at the moment? Um, and I found that the most depressing part about the, the Edinburgh reforms is that even then, things that we thought in 2017 were important and, and quick and easy to get done are still going through a consultation stage. And the policy papers that are attached to it um, are basically all about changing the retained EU legislation and giving power back to the PRA and the FCA. And this could have been done the moment we left the EU. There is a lot in reading the policy paper behind the Edinburgh reforms is you see how slowly things are going and they've actually stated that they don't want to um, make things, um, uh, you know, they don't want to upset the apple cart. They don't want to change anything too quickly. And in fact, I, I think that they're going far too slowly. Um, mm. It seems, it seems like this is a, a consistent story across a, a lot of different regulatory areas where the government's kind of pointed to potential post-Brexit opportunities but hasn't necessarily acted on those or, or certainly acting very slowly and announces a review or says a review is coming. Um, and all they've really done so far, and it seems like a big part of the, the financial services um, regulatory space is just copying and pasting what was retained EU law into UK legislation without much change. Well, I think a lot of it is to do with the way financial services changed in the sort of 30 years since um, the sort of single market reforms in the EU, where you've got very large multinational banks have taken over a lot of the smaller, more dynamic country, companies that used to exist in financial services in the UK, 
And those guys have had very big pulling power in the EU. They are very good at lobbying governments to get what they need. And they will also be the people most likely to be lobbying our present government to try and resist any change. Now, I, I understand why they're doing this because they have spent a lot of money complying with the first MIFID and then the second MIFID and the solvency regulations. And, you know, they've spent the last sort of since 2007 complying with various EU regulations. So I can understand why a lot of them are going faster. We don't want any more changes. But at the same time, a lot of those regulations really didn't suit the industry. It was very good for the large multinationals and they have benefited hugely. But it did keep out a lot of um, smaller companies. It kept out a lot of new market participants, which in most industries is really important. Um, mm. As the IEA proposes, where, you know, that free market element where you need to have new players in there offering new services. Um, yeah, I think that's, again, that's quite a consistent regulatory story. Yeah. Um, often uh, the incumbents in industry will oppose regulations at the time or raise issues with them. But then once they've adapted to it, um, the, the regulations effectively act as a barrier to entry for competitors. In the financial services space, I was pretty struck by a, a, a quote I saw in the FT from Marvin Davis, who was a, a former banker and was a Labor minister when, it, when the government did a lot of the post-financial crisis reforms. And, and he said something like, some of the regulations we put in place were making us less competitive. We took e-directives and made them tougher. Our institutions need to be competitive or risk becoming irrelevant on a global stage. Um, and I think that's that quiche of competition with likes of New York, Frankfurt, Paris, Singapore, Hong Kong, all, all these other financial hubs. And if the UK doesn't get the regulatory framework right, there is a huge risk of, of loss of London as this uh, hub of financial activity and, and Britain being a much poorer country as a result. Yes, I, I agree with that. And um, But weirdly, and they, they do in the policy paper, attached to the Edinburgh reforms talk about um, how we'll um, remove the gold plating, and which is kind of amusing because the UK was instrumental in putting the gold plating on most of the EU regulations. <laughs> um, but it's, um, it is true. And the, I've noticed a lot of the commentators are talking about international competition, but the competition that is dealt with and spelt out very specifically in the policy paper is competition within the marketplace and competition for uh, to benefit consumers um, and to benefit the industry itself, which is important because a lot of our loss of competition in international markets is to do is outside the control of the PRA or the FCA because our real loss of competitive uh, competition has come from our taxation department. Um, and they, um, you know, you, you really, in this industry where people can move very quickly and when markets cease to be physical markets where you needed to be standing in the pit of the life exchange to do a, um, a futures transaction, which is the way it was when I arrived here in the mid eighties, um, all of that's gone now. So you really don't need to be sitting in London for any reason other than the fact that everyone else is sitting here. And uh, there was a report yesterday in the Telegraph about how high net worth individuals are beginning to leave London because it's just getting too expensive um, and the taxes are too high. 
And we really have to look at that. If we want to be internationally competitive, we have to look at how we're taxing our corporates. We've had a bank tax, a bank surcharge of an additional 8% um, on their profits since the 2008 collapse. But the ridiculous thing about that bank surcharge is the banks that are paying it are the profitable banks who are generally the banks that did not require government assistance after 2008. And the banks that did require the financial assistance, well, some of them have got their act together and through help from the government are now viable and were, were sold. But the biggest one, the Royal Bank of Scotland, uh, they've changed their name to NatWest, but it's still 50% owned by the, the taxpayer. Um, so it's kind of ridiculous that we're asking good banks to base themselves in the UK and pay taxes to benefit the bad banks, you know, and that's what we've been doing for a long time. It is, now, it is notable that the, the government's not only did, not getting rid of the 45p tax rate, which we know uh, didn't yeah. really raise much revenue, but but certainly discouraged entrepreneurship and people basing themselves in the UK, but also putting up corporate tax rates to, yeah. to, to 25%. I'm, I'm keen though to just move into some of the more specific proposals in the Edinburgh reforms and get your thoughts yeah. on them. Um, one of the ones that uh, something we've talked about the IEA previously, my, my former colleague Victoria Houston wrote a paper about is this idea of putting a, a kind of innovation principle or objective uh, in regulators and the government has put that forward in, that they're going to create a secondary objective to promote growth and competitiveness on the Financial Conduct Authority and the Prudential Regulation Authority. Now, do you think creating that objective, um, I think some critics have said, well, that shouldn't be the objective of the regulation, and that's going to encourage risky um, behaviour by the regulators. Um, I guess uh, on the other side of that, you might say, what does that objective actually mean in practice? Are they actually going to change the way they regulate? Do you have much faith in that? those kind of changes to the objectives? Is, is this a step in the right direction or, or a bit meaningless? No, I think it's a very good step. And you asked me to begin with about the the financial services bill. And a lot of the bill is taking the power out of governments um, and putting it back into the, the regulators who, because they want us to be competitive by having agile regulation. And I think putting regulation back into the experts who should know about it and understand it and giving them a broad thing so that the PRA should be in charge of people's solvency basically they should know that the the companies have assets to meet their liabilities and the FCA should know that the people running these things are, are not criminal and they're not going to run off with your money they may invest it badly but they won't run off with it um, the um, and just giving them this sort of broad remit and in the policy statement they have a um, a little clause, you know, with regards to, I think it is, or, you know, taking notice of or something like that, which means the government can steer them in the right direction and, and say, well, you, you must regulate that people are solvent but have regard to the fact that there's still competition in the market so you don't make the solvency so stringent that you cut out new people. So I think that that's, it's quite good regulation, I would think, but obviously Victoria will, will have a more legal perspective on it. But I think just bringing it back into a UK system where it's run by common law, where there will be um, case law that will develop this regulation as it goes forward. But one thing I did notice that I think is incredibly risky 
is an idea that they want to change the rules around um, local government's pension funds and allow them to invest in venture capital. Now, I'm absolutely fine with pension funds investing in infrastructure because those are very solid, usually with a regular payment. But venture capital, though some people can make fortunes out of it, usually for every one they make a fortune out of, there'll be half a dozen that they lost everything. I mean, and it mm. is, venture capital is a lose everything situation. Yeah, it's, it's you know, 1% of the investments pay off. You, you yeah. really see that. You, you you see Facebook and Google and think that's the, the whole yeah. picture when it's just a tiny yeah. proportion yes. of investments. Yeah, exactly. And the idea that a pension fund, a government pension fund would invest in this is like, well, if they lose all their money and unfortunately a lot, you know, over the years that I've been here, we've seen um, local authorities trying to invest in the derivative market and losing. And, you know, when they do lose, if it's a government authority, the people who end up paying the bill are taxpayers, either Mm. directly where the government has to pick up the pension liability or indirectly because the the charges go up to pay for it. So I, I'm very, very sceptical of that. Um, that's one I noticed. I'm not sure what other things will make it too risky. Most people I've talked to in the city about this feel it's, it's not going fast enough. I mean, that's yeah. what, um, as, as um, you know, I think that when you look at the legislation uh, that's going through Parliament at the moment, which you can read on the internet, it's like 350 or so pages in one long line, pretty much. It's not divided up, even though it's published electronically, it's not divided up by topic. It's it's very cumbersome to read. And they could really start, if you want to get out of the EU and start doing things differently, the first things I would get rid of is the way the EU does these long legislation, you know, break things up. And the second thing is get rid of all of these stupid EU words made out of um, initials that, that there are perfectly good English words that mean those things, and there always were. And the idea that I am still reading about USITs, um, which no one seems to even remember what that stands for anymore. And I noticed in a couple of the documents, they'd turned the S at the end, which actually stands for securities, they turned it into a plural so that there was a lowercase s. <laughs> and they obviously haven't forgotten that the important part is traded securities. The TS is traded securities. The mm. middle bit, no one cares about and the units it's like well we used to just call them shares and that was or or units they were English words that meant those things we didn't have to invent all these stupid European things um so so some of the to to get your thoughts on some of the other the other changes in there um one is that they're looking at reviewing the senior managers liability uh regime um, and and where the responsibility ends up laying uh, as a issue in terms of incentives. Obviously, I think that was put in place to say, well, you're liable for failures uh, in in financial um, markets that you operate in, uh, and you need some personal responsibility. That otherwise, it's a moral hazard. Um, is that something that is kind of the reasonable to review for the sake of creating an un- undue burden? I've I've actually 
been a bit of an advocate of this over the years because when I started in the industry, a huge number of the investment banks were in fact partnerships. So Solomon Brothers, Lehman Brothers, Goldman Sachs, they were all um, partnerships. And obviously you made a, a fortune when you became a partner, but at the same time, because they had personal liability, they were much more aware of the risks they were running on an overnight basis. Now, obviously, by limiting liability and becoming publicly traded companies, they were able to expand their remit and have become huge, much, much bigger than they ever were, and trading in a lot of things. And some of them, obviously, Lehman's disappeared completely. Solomon Brothers got bought out. I can't even remember who bought them. I think they've sort of absorbed into Citibank or something. But um, the, um, and Goldman's is still going and is, become a retail bank as well as an investment bank. But it does mean that they are willing to take or able to take lot much bigger risks. So I, I do I do feel that having senior management having some some skin in the game is is I'm not so sure it's such a bad thing. Now I know a lot of them complain desperately about the forms they had to fill in and the um, the paperwork involved. Um, but I think that this is this has happened everywhere. I know that board members of companies can get insurance um, against any liability of making mm. a bad decision on the board. And you sit there going, "Well, they all get they get quite high um, remuneration for their positions, so it, it's like all upside and no downside." So I, that's a tricky one, actually. I'm, I don't know that I I have a um, I've really thought that one through. That wasn't yeah. something that I was um, that interested about. Um, I was very interested in the competitive element of it because yeah. that was something that we've element, been talking about for such a long time. Yeah, is the um, the the changes to the ring fencing arrangements has also been highlighted. Oh yeah, um, this this has been talked about a lot in the US. Um, I think it's is it the equivalent of Glass Steagall, the best I can uh, mm. see. Is is that something actually important when it comes to financial risk, or is this being exaggerated? As a, no, as no, a no, that's massively important and something that we we wrote about years ago because there was under the EU regulations because technically every bank had the ability to operate in another country in within the EU. They all had to comply with the Financial Stability Board, which is a sort of a G20 operation um, and hold the, the reserves required by the Financial Stability Board. Even if you were a building society in New York or a you know metro bank in London who never intended to, to move outside of the UK, um, but they still had to abide by these rules. And a building society in the UK is a mutual fund. I mean, they only lend out what the assets they have, then they're not leveraged at all. So it, it makes a lot of sense that they they um, sort out who re who requires how how much um, what kind of assets they they need, uh, what provisions they need, and also in terms of the um, uh, the ring fencing that was bought in under Glass-Steagall, which was, was abandoned in the early 2000s before the, the 2007 um, uh, collapse. But they, um, 
it was really after the, I think it was in the 1930s, to divide up investment bank assets from, from saving bank assets. And I think it made a lot of sense, even though at one stage in my career, I was working at Chase Manhattan Bank in London, and they were very frustrated about it because there were so many things that they couldn't do because of that act. But I think it's important when you, you see the calamity that happened after the um, 2007, 2008, that they did divide that. But of course, that isn't necessary for companies that are not involved in investment banking. So it's really something that should be centered on the investment bank. So I thought that was proportionality is important in all regulations. And so bringing that in on the things like whether you need to ring fence certain assets. Um, also the, the type of thing, if you're dealing with consumers, uh, retail consumers, or if you're just dealing with independent banks, um, because there is a lot of wholesale trading that goes on in the city and they should have different regulations from the people who are dealing with, you know, mum and pop investors and, and pension funds and things. Um, another thing I thought was very interesting in it was it was talking about setting up, allowing funds that manage overseas money to go into crypto assets and talked about setting the, setting the process in place for um, uh, having um, investing in crypto assets in the UK and setting up a central bank um, pound, basically. But they were talking about that, digital currency, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and they're talking about that from a retail perspective, which seems crazy because one of the other things they talked about in his speech and also in the policy paper is making transactions quicker, you know, speeding up the whole transaction. Mm. And the best way to do that would be to set up a wholesale central bank currency. I mean, forget about the retail one. That is going to upset all sorts of conspiracy theorists and it's all going to get far too hard and you know I mean, it doesn't seem like there's much point of it as well since you, you already yeah. have perfectly good retail bank like we, we, we don't need to be able to make a claim on the central bank for our the value of our currency like the, the banking system yeah. already provides that function and almost everyone i know just pays by tapping their card so it's it's as quick as yeah. a digital currency. But I guess the real losers might be Visa and MasterCard and, and maybe that's a, that's a good in itself. Uh, well, that could be true, but they're, fees, they're but... doing a great service at the moment. And I have yeah. talked to a couple of people who are trying to develop methods of payment. And when you look at the amount of transactions Visa and MasterCard are able to do globally every second of every day, um, you said they're going, well, if they've managed to build a system that's that effective, why why would you change it? You know, you don't fix something that's not broken. Yeah, the, the fact that you can go to any corner of, of the planet pretty much at this point and just tap your yeah. card and it seems to work just fine is is actually a, pretty much a modern miracle. But but you know, wholesale um, bank transactions are still uh, settled within two days, and that could be settled within two seconds. Mm -hmm. And it's one of those things where you think, well. That's that's the place where you need it. And I'm, I'm not sure why this whole paper is talking about it from a retail perspective and from a fund management perspective and letting you know fund managers invest in crypto assets. 
and you're sitting there going, well, actually, there is one place that's crying out for, for a crypto asset, and the City of London is it. And to have a digital ledger um, where everyone's you know, money is transferred immediately would be a very smart thing. And then you have security of payment. So there isn't the, the two days of wondering if the person who just bought something is actually going to settle for it. You know, you, you have that immediate transaction. Mm. So that's something that I'm surprised they didn't do. And I think yeah. that was badly advised that they're, they're sort of getting on the bandwagon that people like to talk about, you know, central bank yeah, digital currencies and it's the, like the uh, cool hip new new thing it's, it's yeah that, that valuable. exactly yeah, everyone's just kind of talking about it without really knowing why um i mean generally speaking i think a lot of the proposals are leaning in a, in a pretty liberalizing direction one though that did stand out to me that that might be of interest is is consulting on putting in place esg requirements that's the environmental social and governance rating providers and bringing that into the regulatory perimeter now i don't know exactly what that means in practice but that seems to come with a certain kind of political tinge to it in terms of encouraging certain kinds of investments um, that might not necessarily be the role of the regulator to, to put pressure onto companies. Do, how do you think the ESG uh, investing, obviously there is a, a thriving private market in ESG investing, but does there need to regulatory requirements around that? I think that the most important thing for the regulator to do, and unfortunately, though I think our regulators are very much geared up to look into a company's financial situation and to trust that they're solvent, I'm not sure that they actually have the expertise to do this. But even pre-COVID, you know, when we were still doing meetings in the city, people were talking about greenwashing. It's a really big problem where people may think that they're investing in an ethical fund or fund that's saving the planet or whatever, but there is no one actually checking up that they're doing this. And often what people are discovering is that they're not very green at all or their, their greenness is to do with them buying carbon credits or something like that. In a, um, in a corrupt carbon credit market. Yeah, sort of yeah, in a market that doesn't even exist or they think they're planting trees in Brazil only to discover that piece of land is in the middle of the Atlantic somewhere. You know, it's just um, so that they're not, um, that, is, that is a big issue that, you know, a lot of people, especially young people, your generation probably think that they're investing in something that's green and good for the world and, in fact, they're not. And I think the whole ESG movement has has been come under scrutiny because it's that also the, the ESG sort of ratings are being handed out in a very spurious and quite political manner. And so oil companies have got higher ESG ratings than the, you know, electric car manufacturers or things like that and there have been um but i do know funds that meet their gs esg targets by um you know giving to charities that are removing landmines in former war zones and things like that which is a a great thing to do but it's it's such a wide field what what can be um covered by esg and i think a lot of people don't understand that and they might um, you know, everyone forgets about the governance bit. Um, they think it's all about the environment and you're going, well, actually, no, there's a social bit, the S bit and the governance. And um, in fact, 
they're probably the easier bits to invest in or do something with than the environment, which I think is is very um, hit and miss in a way. I mean, yeah. You, you... Call, call me call me a bit of a Friedmanite traditionalist, but I, I I do subscribe a little bit more to the the shareholder view of of capitalism in the sense that I don't necessarily want my investments to be uh, going towards environmental goals or social goals or governance goals for that matter. But I appreciate if people do want to invest in those things. No reason well, to I stop think them. that it, it, we've got to remember that, but it's, you know, in, people are investing for profit and that's the, the whole risk re- reward thing relies on that. Mm. And we sort of got government author- departments that wanted to remove the risk. And that I think is a big problem. And also take a lot of the rewards, which is a big problem. You know, you've got, um, and so I'm very skeptical of when governments are, are constantly taking the risk out of investing, because then you find that individual investors don't look into things that they should look into. I mean, we saw this in an example would be the Woodford funds where he was investing in very small cap companies. Often there were startup companies, which is a good thing. They need investment. But because they're small cap and they, they didn't have a lot of issued companies, uh, uh, shares rather, his own buying was pushing the price up. And of course, then a lot of investment advisors who should be the ones that got into trouble, not Woodford, because they were channeling small investors into his funds because the funds were going up and it's very easy to sell um, a product that's going up and so they were happy to you know someone says what will I invest in they'll go oh this one and as more and more money went into it it obviously pushed the shares in these very small companies higher and higher and higher until you know the you know you couldn't get out effectively there was no other buyer there was no real market And that was the advisory firms who were really at fault. But unfortunately, the the investor was at fault. But all of the the FCA should have been doing is, you know, that their job is to make sure that Woodford wasn't stealing the money, which he wasn't doing. And a lot of people expect the FCA to protect them from losses. And that's not what they do. They're meant to protect the guy from stealing your money they don't protect you from you investing in something that was a dodgy investment. Yeah, That's this, your this is the problem. The, the consumer duty that the, the FCA is talking about bringing in. If, yeah. if you uh, look closely at that, I think a lot in the sector are concerned about this idea that there will be a, a duty on, on companies effectively not to be unprofitable almost, uh, to, to not um, harm consumers through the products that they sell them. And of course, um, you know, as you hear constantly on any financial ad, you, you're, you're, capital is at risk you've got you've got to take that risk and reward i'm just yeah. in some final thoughts on you so obviously yeah. um, we've been through a few of the edinburgh reforms um i think you've you've commented it, 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 in a few different ways about the fact that government isn't necessarily going far enough in terms of taking back opportunities what are some of the highlights of what you would like to see the government do to really boost that competitiveness what what were the things you've been you were talking about at the iea since 2017 uh in terms of opportunities at brexit that could have a really big bang impact for for the regulatory change that the government's not doing and they should be doing well the the one that was in mentioned in the paper and i was intrigued to see that that is still um they're about to have a call for evidence into short selling now like if short selling is not scary 
you can lose no more. The, if you, um, there is this assumption that if you're short something, it could go up infinitely high and you would lose a lot of money. Where, of course, if you buy something, it can actually go to zero. You, know, you could lose the, your entire investment. But the reason people still buy shares is because they know if it starts falling or if circumstances change or the company stops making money, they will sell. They have the ability to get out. And the same with if you're short. If you think a company is overvalued, so you go short and then it, it improves or it changes its management style, it does something different and it starts to go up, you, you will buy those shares back. You know, you'll close out your position. And it intrigues me that the EU, of course, never understood that. They never really understood financial markets. They had a very Germanic attitude towards all trading. And the idea that they banned this, um, it's just allowed a lot of companies to become, um, what's the word, their value is not real, if you like, because you could only, it was only a one-way bet. You could only buy it. And if you yeah. owned it, I you think could that's sell the best it. example of this was Wirecard, the Wirecard scandal, where yeah. uh, there was alleged short selling going on within the market and speculation that Wirecard's finances were not to scratch. But the whole German regulatory political establishment defended Wirecard viciously, and it turns out there was a massive fraud being perpetrated that the regulators had missed, and the, and the short sellers were right; they were right to try to um, short sell the stock and, and highlight the issues that the, the something just didn't really make sense in their finances. Um, yeah. And I think that's probably a classic case of where short selling is actually quite valuable in the market to signal that something isn't quite right. And when you're trying to, they, I think they even went after the FT in London um, mm. uh, quite aggressively saying they're making things up about Wirecard. Uh, it turns out that the regulators are wrong and, and the FT was, was pretty much right. Yeah. And the idea that they should um, stop people doing that is, was incredible. So I'm, I'm glad to see that's in there. Um, the, um, there are reforms about the way um, the well, a lot of the ones are in there, but the the real the thing that's disappointed me the most is the the way it's not an immediate change. It's a change that's going to happen. Um, you know, we're going to have a the, the number of times he mentioned in the in the speech about having a consultation or having um, asking for evidence, call for evidence, consultation, yada yada yada, and you just think this is going to take forever. So I'd say that's that's my biggest problem with it is the the lack of immediacy, um, because the beginning of his speech is talking about making the UK dynamic. That's the word he uses, dynamic and competitive. And you're going, well, nothing's dynamic if it's taken six years to change any regulation and it will take another two years before you do anything. I mean, they're still proposing having a consolidated tape, and but that won't happen until 2024. And I think that's when they're having their consultation on it. And, you know, Singap the Singapore government regulator has had since pre-COVID, every night they have a data dump from every bank. Now they're not using that for a consolidated tape, even though they could, or at least they weren't when I last spoke to the regulator, which was back in 2019, but they were using it for um, 
so they have a complete record. The central bank has a record of, of all transactions that have happened. So if there is a problem, they can sort of go back and uh, uh, see what was going on. But you know, I think if Singapore can do that, I think London can probably do that. And they could certainly do that to consolidate the tapes on the bond trades. Um, and now that they have various platforms for equity markets, they probably need to do that for equity markets as well. Um, the, um, and why that's, they've been talking about it since 2017, and now they're talking about it in 2024. And, you know, <laughs> I hope to be alive by the time it still happens, you know, it's yeah, going to go it's, on it's, and on and on. Well, it's Groundhog Day in uh, financial regulatory reform. I mean, thank you so much, Catherine, for for joining the IA podcast. It's been a really fascinating discussion about some of the, the good and bad and, and, and complexities in, in this space and, and very much appreciate your, your time and, and your thoughts. Um, for those who are enjoying the IEA podcast, please do subscribe on your chosen podcast provider, uh, as well as uh, you can check out the latest podcasts and, and other IEA content on the IEA's YouTube channel. Um, if you'd like to support the IEA, please do visit um, IEA.org.uk and you can sign up to become a patron. Thank you very much.